Good morning, everyone. How are you? It is good to see you. It's, isn't it nice that it's not raining today? Yes, today was a day to sit in a boat. My name is Don Earhart, and uh, I am so thrilled to be here. 14 years ago, uh, I was called by Dave Williams and a search committee and began a process to become hired as a pastor here. And it's been an amazing ride. This morning is actually my last Sunday morning to be up here. I will, after this, get to be out there with you guys, which is a lot less nerve wracking. And uh, I'm looking forward to that. But uh, I don't know if you've heard, but I have um, resigned. I'll be done this Thursday, the end of this month. And I have purchased a, a franchise. I've always dreamed of having my own business. And so I'm starting a a business called Bloomin' Blinds of West St. Louis. How about that? Bloomin' Blinds of West St. Louis. Uh, we'll be selling and installing and repairing uh, window blinds, custom window blinds and shutters and, and all the window covering kind of stuff. And, and so I haven't even been to training yet. That will happen. I leave next Sunday to go to Dallas for a time and then, then we'll be back to be part of the church family. So uh, if you ever need help... You know what, I, th I think there are some people from the original search committee who are here this morning. Walt Steiner, Lisa Shukart, Bill Peskorse. I, I don't, I think that's it. I don't know if Dave, I don't see Dave Williams. You guys, thanks for hiring me, I really appreciate it. <laughs> it's, it's also good to have my whole family and, and my daughter Ellie's boyfriend here this morning, so uh, glad. <laughs> Glad you guys are here, and there are a couple other special guests here, like the Jeff and Lisa, it's great to see you guys, but in 1993, this pastor named Tommy Paino took a risk on a little dingling named Don Earhart and hired him, and Tommy's wife Sandy is here tonight, or the, tonight, this morning. Sandy, it's so good to see you. Uh, Sandy was this spunky lady who would call you out on things. I remember Sandy... Uh, one time when I had helped my dad put down his, his boat lift, and as I was hanging on this boat lift, I let go, and my ring, my wedding ring got stuck on there, and it peeled the skin off of my finger, and I refused after that point to wear a wedding ring because it was dangerous. And uh, <laughs> Sandy, I say you don't, you won't remember this, but Sandy called me out and said, you need to go buy a wedding ring and you need to be wearing that. Like, oh, yes, yes, ma'am. <laughs> and I have had a wedding ring on ever since then, Sandy. So nice work. Way to call out, way to call out a young guy and, uh, and make things right. And then um, Wes Ehrlichman and his mom are here. Wes, Wes was part of the youth group in Indiana. You graduated in 1997, is that right? 1997, and um, they're here, they live in St. Louis now, so it's great to see, to see you guys. Well, this morning, oh, I have one more thing. So, uh, in between Bill Jones resigning as our senior pastor and Adam being hired as our new senior pastor, um, John Richardson and I, we, we swapped speaking up here every Sunday morning, and so I was a nervous wreck most of that whole I don't know, an eight or nine month period. But somewhere in that time, I went to the fine clothing establishment here in town called Kohl's. And I found this suit that was amazing. It was a flamingo suit. And it had these 
flamingo pants and a flamingo tie that matched and a jacket. And, and somehow one of the guys uh, found a picture of me and started to send it around. And so a group of, of the high schoolers kept saying, please, if you're going to speak on Sunday night, you have to wear your flamingo suit. You have to. And I said this, if I ever wear that flamingo suit, it will be my last Sunday to ever speak up there. Now, <laughs> Mitchell, wherever you are, Mitchell, this is for you. Um, I would have worn the pants, but I can't get them, <laughs> they're too tight. <laughs> anyway, uh, Ellie, did you get a picture? You did? Okay, okay. Now I've done it, and now it's my last Sunday. <laughs> this morning I come with good news. Uh, And if I could be bold enough to say it, I believe it's good news from Jesus Christ to you all. It's good news that he's going to bring that will will connect our messes to his goodness and his grace. And uh, and, and so let me just pray that God God helps us to to hear what he has to say. Lord, I ask that you would would, um, help your message to be brighter than a flamingo suit. And um, that you would, would speak to us this morning. We love you. And, um, and we're here because we're just, we're here to learn from you. And so I ask God that you would speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Several years ago, I went through this period where I was fascinated with what it was going to be like when Jesus returns. And I, I hope you know that Jesus has promised that he will come back to earth one day and there will be a judgment period and then, and then uh, he will renew heaven and earth and things will be new and different and his promises for that time are amazing. Listen to this. Um, Jesus' return will usher a time where the world will be sinless with no more sorrow or tears, a place completely devoid of Satan and all the evil forces, a place with no more pain, a place with no more sickness. Try to imagine that, what that would be like. It's hard to get your, your head around it. We will be with the holy God of the universe, with myriads and myriads of of people from all sorts of nationalities. No evil, no death, no sorrow, no cancer, no pain. It's so out there that it's hard to imagine. What would this be like? In Revelation 21, we have a picture that Jesus gave to the apostle John that he wrote down and gave us. And this is just part of what, what he saw and wrote down for us to have have as a reference. Here's what he says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from the God of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And then John says this. He says, I heard a loud shout from the throne. So there's this big shout, and here's what the shout says. Look, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. 
That is good news. That's really good news. Kevin, I, I can close in prayer now. <laughs> um, However, there's a problem in my thinking. And as I was studying all this, I began to have this uneasiness in my heart. And I was starting to wrestle with the fact that there was a problem. There's this sinless place where, where there's no evil. And here was the problem that I began to realize and wrestle with. I have a lot of issues. I often think troubling things in my mind. I struggle with selfishness every day. I think bad thoughts of others. I have lustful thoughts. I sometimes want what the world has to offer more than I want the kingdom of God. I covet my neighbors. I don't love well. I don't show grace. I'm impure in my thoughts. I'm impure in my words. I'm impure in my actions. I'm the master of having a long devotional time in the morning where I read and spend time talking to God, read the Bible and spend time talking to God. But oftentimes I'll get up and leave that time that was so good and never even think of God the rest of the day. So, here was my dilemma. How, when Jesus comes and makes things new, do I fit in this place that is sinless? When I looked in the mirror, what I saw and what I see today is not someone who fits in a sinless place. How does this work out? Jesus returns and it all just clears up and I'm just, it just magically goes away. I wasn't sure how that all worked out and it began, it began to bug me. And I wonder if I'm the only one that ever wrestles with some of these things. What about you? Do you look in the mirror and see a problem? What's your daily thought life like? Are your thoughts as pure as snow or are they like me? That snow is oftentimes kind of yellow. How do you respond to those who wrong you? Are you content with where your life has brought you so far? Do you worry about things that God promises to take care of? What do you do when no one else is looking? Who's really on the throne of your life? I think if we're honest, for all of us, when we ask ourselves a question like these, or questions like these, is Jesus really single-handedly the Lord, the master of our life? Is he the king of everything we want and long for? And the answer, I think for all of us is no. So we both have a problem in regards to this future. How are we gonna fit? How do we fit in this place that is sinless? How do we fit? How do we navigate through a place where there is no evil? How does that happen? Well, in light of such thoughts and challenges, we turn again this morning to the Beatitudes. I think this is our sixth or seventh week on the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes that Jesus taught. And I want you to think about this for a minute. These beatitudes that Jesus gave to these early disciples back in the day, um, if we know that Jesus is the Son of God, He came from heaven to earth, 
If it's impossible for God to lie, then we know that these words are wisdom from heaven that Jesus is bringing to his people. They're not fabricated, they're not false, there's no untruth in them, they're completely true. And here's our beatitude for this morning. Matthew 5, 8, God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. That's the New Living Translation. And for this particular application, I actually like the, the English Standard Version better, ESV. Here's, here's how it reads there, Matthew 5, 8. Blessed or blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Jesus was speaking to a bunch of, of Jewish people who were somewhat familiar with the Old Testament law and they were following Jesus around, calling themselves his disciples. They were committed enough at this point that they had followed Jesus up to a mountainside. If you read the beginning of Matthew chapter five, you'll see that Jesus had, had walked up the side of a mountain and this group had followed him and he began to teach them these beatitudes and other things. And we even know that, that James and John and Peter and Andrew had left their fishing careers with their father and had left and had started to follow Jesus. So, so this teaching wasn't to a group of people who just happened to casually pass by Jesus and get some answers to life. These teachings were things that Jesus aimed at his small group who wanted to know what the kingdom of God was about. They were his disciples. They had to work to get on up to the side of the mountain. And what he said to them was a bit of heaven's wisdom come to earth. This group was making sacrifices to follow Jesus already. In 2016, I went to the National Youth Workers Convention, which is something that... that I've done for years and years and years. It's always been a, a great three or four days of encouragement uh, in helping young people fall in love with Jesus Christ. And this particular year, the first general session speaker just started out of the, of the bat. He, he was working for Barna Research and he threw out some research stuff that was coming up. And here's, here's the basic gist of what he was, he was saying. He said, many young people today don't find that following God is something they particularly desire. They really that aren't that interested in getting close to God. Going to heaven certainly is not a priority because being in the presence of the God they have pictured isn't that appealing. Many, when more polled as college students, admitted that they were putting up a front while in their teen years to keep their parents happy. Ah. And when I heard that and began chewing on it, it really rocked my world. It frustrated me, it hurt, hurt. It, um, it was hard to understand, but I had to be honest, if I looked at our teens, many of them were graduating from high school and then from college, and many who were actively involved in our ministry to young people here had walked away from their faith. It was true, I had seen it happen, and you probably have too. And I had to ask myself, why? What's going on? 
Why wouldn't they want to seek a relationship with God? Why isn't God attractive to them in the same compelling way that it was for these early disciples and for so many of us? Well, we could talk about this for, for a long time, but as I was thinking about this again this week, here's, here's where I came down. In regards to following Jesus, I think if we were completely honest, which any of us longs for God more than anyone or anything? Which, which one of us doesn't get our, the things that we long for mixed up with worldly things and godly things? Do we really want to see God or do we just want God to help us? Most of the time our answer to dealing with our brokenness is just to try harder or to bury it with things like Netflix or other, other recreational activities. Often we try to buy our way out of our issues with beautiful purchases or amazing trips. Or maybe we blame others or we blame our gene pool or we medicate with pornography or alcohol or pot or jeweling or physical affairs. If we were to be honest, we are anything but pure people. But this morning, this morning, Jesus is going to point us in a different direction. He's going to show us the futility of our own efforts to overcome challenges of this life. And he's going to give us a hope where there is hopelessness. He's going to point us to the key for life here today and key for life in all eternity. Jesus clearly and simply states two truths that he has brought from heaven to us, and here they are. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, and those who have pure hearts will see God. Neither of these scenarios leave me with much hope when I'm left on my own. Think about it. God blesses those who are pure in heart. Well, I've already mentioned that that's not me. And then Jesus says, those who have pure hearts will see God. From my vantage point, these two are impossible. Me having a pure heart and thus me seeing God. Has Jesus just set us up to squish us? Has he set us up in a life hoax that God has laid out that leaves us left to our own demise? Is our only hope that life continues without us ever seeing and experiencing God? Can we trust him? Is he really loving? Is he really kind? Is he really full of compassion? Yet if you read the, these beatitudes, they don't have a sense of condemnation. They don't have that sense of, you losers, what's wrong with you? It doesn't feel like that when you read these beatitudes. It seems that Jesus is alluding to something here. He's trying to pull us into recognizing some truth. He's alluding to the fact that there is hope to be pure. And there is hope to see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Let's dig just for a minute. You know, when you read in the Bible a reference about your heart, you know that it's not referring to the organ in our bodies that pumps blood, right? You know, you know that. Kelly, you know that. Uh, that's not at all what, what the Bible refers to. And, and what, if you look at Jewish understanding of Jesus, in Jesus' day, the heart was the center of one's feelings and emotions, um, their thoughts and their will. 
It was the seed of their decision-making, their moral choices, their feelings, the center, the very center of their personality, their heart. We do the same thing when we say things like, I love you with all my heart. I love you with all my heart. We're not saying, I love you with the organ inside of, of my chest, right? We know that. So Jesus is speaking about having a purity in the center of our being. Being pure in heart refers to your will, your intellect, your feelings, your character, your personality of being pure, pure in heart. What does it mean to be pure? Well, in the Bible, the word pure and the word word holy are often interchangeable, pure and holy. When God is called holy, it's the same as saying God is completely pure, that there's nothing within God that lacks integrity. There's nothing in God that lacks goodness, that everything about God is right, that he is completely righteous, that he is just, that he is holy, loving, full of mercy, kind. There's nothing impure about God. He is holy. He is the epitome of purity. You remember the story in, in uh, Exodus 33 of Moses? Uh, Moses so badly wanted to see and experience God. He asked God to show himself to him. And God told Moses that it didn't work that way. God told Moses, you can't look at my face and live, Moses. God knew if Moses looked at his face, his glory, his purity, his holiness, that it would kill Moses. Why? Because Moses was just like us. He was impure, he was sinful. So God didn't allow Moses to see his front side. That's the power of God's purity. It would fry us in an instant to be in our sinful state in the face of a holy and pure God. So is this the kind of purity that Jesus was referring to when he says the pure in heart will see God? Well, there's another aspect of purity that we find in the Bible also, and it's the essence that a pure heart is an undivided heart. A pure heart is an undivided heart. Let me give you some examples. Matthew 6, Jesus is speaking and he says this. He says, your eye is like the lamp, a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. And that word healthy there, when your eye is healthy, that's a purity word, that's a holiness word. It's, it's, Jesus is saying, when your eye is good or pure or undivided in focus, then your whole body will be filled with light. Jesus is teaching that that our eyes are healthy or pure, they're undivided on, in, in their focus, that they need to be healthy and pure and undivided in their focus. And in the same way, a pure heart is a, it's a healthy heart. It's undivided in its focus. It's, it's a pure heart. It's the thing that Elijah called out the Israelites on in Mount Carmel, 1 Kings. Uh, says, Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of them and said, how much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. And the people were completely silent. Elijah was asking, how long are you going to be multifocused? He was saying to these Israelites, your heart isn't pure. You have a divided heart. James says this in James chapter 1. When you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Don't waver, for a person with a divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea. 
It's blown and tossed by the wind. Such people shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world. They are unstable in everything they do. Oh, that cuts to the heart. James goes on in chapter four and says, says this, come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. So purity in the heart biblically, biblically can also be, be spoken as being undivided in your heart. You could accurately say, blessed is the heart of one who is undivided, pure heart. But therein lies the problem for us, doesn't it? It doesn't really help us. I often find myself with a divided heart. Well, if it isn't bad enough, let me read a couple more things in case you're not picking up on what is going on here. Jeremiah 17. The prophet Jeremiah says, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? And this part is is a tough one. But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. God searches our heart, examines our secret motives, and he says, I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserved. Paul says something very similar in Romans 3 as he is quoting Old Testament promises and he says, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good. Not a single one. God is pure and holy and unfortunately, I'm impure and divided. And unfortunately, so are you. Isn't that exciting? (laughs) What do we do with that? Why would Jesus, to knowing all of this, why would he say, blessed or blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God? Why, what's he digging at here? Well, here, here's where I think Jesus is taking these disciples and taking us. We find the answer to our purity problem in Jesus. We find the answer to our purity problem in Jesus. The only sinless one, the only pure one who's come to earth and lived and died, guiltless and innocent, He lived a sinless life and he even overcame the impurity of death. He rose out of of death with victory, not for himself. Death couldn't hold down the God of the universe. He rose out of the impurity of death for us, for us, to save us from death. The angels who told the shepherds of Jesus' birth, do you remember what they said? That God had sent a savior What was Jesus, this Messiah, saving people from? What was he a savior of? Maybe, just maybe, he came to be a savior of people who had a purity problem. Maybe, just maybe, he was keeping us from the possibility of not seeing God. Maybe he was saving us from a life devoid of true love and a life devoid of true goodness. 
Many of you have heard, have heard my story. I don't want to retell it, but, but when I was in ninth grade, I'll give you part of it. When I was in ninth grade, uh, a friend of mine who I had borrowed his bicycle was walking to my house to pick up his bicycle and he was hit by a drunk driver and he was killed. And the back of the story is the reason that I had his bicycle is I had been doing some things that I shouldn't have been doing. And he, out of the goodness of his heart, loaned me a bike so I could get home. These are before the driving days. And as he's walking to my house to pick up the bike that I'd borrowed, instead of me taking the bike home to him, he's hit and he's killed. And there's more to the story, but the truth of the matter was, as I looked at my friend in that casket, my lifeless friend, as I stared at him in that casket, I knew that I had responsibility in his death. That my actions, that my actions had led to a mother and a father and a brother losing their son and their, and their brother. That my actions and some dumb decisions on my part had led to a young man losing his life. And as a ninth grade boy, that's, that's, hard, that's hard to handle. I did everything I, did, I could to push down those feelings, but the truth is I knew that I had some responsibility. My poor decisions had awful, awful consequences. And it was at that time of despair that Jesus stepped in through a friend and Jesus saved me. He rescued me. He showed me grace and mercy when I deserved condemnation and judgment and punishment. And it was my first taste of God's amazing grace. And it's also why I have such a passion to help young people discover who Jesus is. God birthed that in me because he helped me as a young person who had no desire for God to recognize the power of God's holy and amazing grace. And here, 30 years later, I stand up here as a result of God's amazing grace in my life. And so when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, faith forms a bond, a holy union, which, in which Jesus the Messiah, the Savior, becomes yours and you become his. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. It's a union that gives you multiple gifts that God makes available to you. These gifts are poured out by, Je by Jesus to you as a believer. They're tied directly to our purity. These gifts are God's response to an impure us that enables this impure us to actually have a pure heart. Not in our own efforts, but through the sacrifices G Jesus has made on our behalf. And this morning I wanna to touch on, on three of those gifts. There are a ton of gifts that are available to us as, as Jesus followers, but I wanna to touch on three that, that deal with this purity issue predominantly. The first one is this. It's the gift of being justified. The gift of being justified. Justification or being justified is a legal term and it's a legal gift to those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. When we're in Jesus Christ, God drops all the charges against you. You are made just before God. That was a really big one for me as a ninth grader, and it's a big one for all of us too. The reason a Christian enters into God's presence and eventually into heaven is not, or is because, is because God doesn't charge you for your sins. 
Jesus takes your sin and my sin and the consequence of your sin and my sin, he takes it upon himself. In Isaiah 53, 6, we're told all of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. If you're in Christ Jesus, your debts before God have been paid in full by Jesus. And because they've been paid in full, they will not and cannot be charged to you. You are justified. You have been made just in God's eyes. This is the amazing truth of being justified. And it's even better than that. Because God is just, God cannot require payment for your sinful life twice. If he did, then he wouldn't be just. That wouldn't be righteous. That wouldn't be the right thing to do. So the bill has been paid in full by Jesus for your shortcomings and mine. You are just before God. You are just in his eyes. Your sin has been made pure by Jesus. That's awesome news, isn't it? If we were, if we were darker skinned people, we'd be <laughs> jumping up and down and hey, yes! This is amazing news. We have been justified despite our impurity by Jesus. That's the first gift. The second gift is this that I want to talk about this morning. It's the gift of forgiveness. We hear this word all the time and it kind of just rolls off of us, but it's a powerful gift that God has given us through Jesus. And as justification is a legal gift, forgiveness is a relational, a relational gift. And this gift is also part of God's answer to you becoming pure. When God justifies, he also forgives and reconciles you to himself through Christ Jesus. Think about this in relational terms. Once you were God's enemy. I know we don't like to think about that and that's not necessarily something we teach our children. Hey, you're God's enemy, just know that. But it's true. Our brokenness, our sinfulness, our impurity, our impurity is, is abhorrent to a holy God. Our impurity forces God, because he's righteous, to, to see us as an enemy. It's, it's, hard, it's hard to see, but it's, it's true. But now, instead of being God's enemy, you are his friend. You are seated at his table. The Father's wrath for sin has been paid in full by Jesus. Forgiveness has been granted to you. Forgiveness is a relational gift, and relational gifts are two-way, go two ways. That's why not only is it important to recognize that you are forgiven by God through Jesus, but to recognize and to respond and accept that forgiveness. It's a two-way, it's a relational gift that God, that God has given us. And if you haven't accepted God's forgiveness then I pray that you will this morning. Hebrews chapter 10 says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. And when sins have been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. This gift of forgiveness is also tied to your purity through Jesus. 
God, through the work of Jesus, forgives you of your unrighteous nature. You are forgiven and pure before God. That is amazing. Woohoo! Yes! That's a little better, white people. I hope I'm not getting myself in trouble up here. You have to be careful what you say, you know. This third, the third gift I want to talk about this morning is a little different. And it, it also is a gift that deals with our purity problem. It's the gift of cleansing. As the gift of justification or being justified is a legal gift, the gift of forgiveness is a relational gift. The gift of cleansing, I, I think, is a personal gift. Uh, think about it this way. Uh, our cars, our clothes, and our bodies need regular washing. I mean, you may have a Maserati car or a really nice BMW, and I have an Opal. You got, those of you remember Opals, a few of you in the room. It didn't matter. You still need to have your car cleaned regularly, right? It gets dirty. I mean, a shower once a week doesn't cut it in my household. We need regular cleansing. And in the same way, justification, that happens once. You become justified by God. It's legal. It's a legal definitive term. Once you're justified, it's done. You are free. But cleansing is different. We need cleansing on a regular basis. We need our hearts purified constantly. Look at this, this promise that we find in 1 John chapter 1. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness. And it could go something like this. God, I, uh, I so thank you that you have made me just in your eyes. And I thank you that you've forgiven me. But God, in the last hour, my thoughts have been horrible. I want you to cleanse them. I ask you to forgive me. Take these thoughts, Lord. I, I lay them at your feet and I ask for your cleansing. It's a personal gift that we can go back to God over and over and over again. And he is righteous to cleanse us. Through our confession of sin, all these gifts are available to us. God is faithful and just. He forgives us and he cleanses us. So faith in Christ is confidence not only of him to justify, to forgive, but also to cleanse. All this through the power of Jesus' blood on that cross for you and for me. Blessed are, or blessed are the pure in heart. There's nothing you can do in your own effort to clean yourself before God. You see, when Jesus is speaking these Beatitudes, look at, look at the religious world that day. How were they cleansing themselves? They were doing a bunch of deeds, right? A bunch of things on their own efforts. They would, they would offer sacrifices and they would, would um, do all these works things and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they built this, this whole system of how they could stay holy and pure before God and Jesus was trying to tell these early disciples, it doesn't work that way. There's nothing you can do on your own effort to clean yourself before God. Your efforts will always fall short. You are impure, but... Jesus' sacrifice is bigger than all of our baggage. His sacrifice is bigger than our worst thoughts. He came not only to justify, but also to sanctify, to make us holy and to make us pure. Your soiled baggage is not greater than God's cleansing work in you. Titus 3, 
Once we too were foolish and disobedient, we were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy and we hated each other. But when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. So here's the good news. We can have a pure heart thanks to the work of Jesus. We can be purified. We can see God. It's not hopeless. It's full of hope. God has come up with a plan to deal with our purity problem. And so if you're here this morning and you're all wrapped up in guilt and fear and frustration, have this, has the circumstances left you and your life empty and devoid of God in his presence, there's great hope for you. I want you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because he will make you just. He will forgive you and he will cleanse you. He wants to save you and reveal himself to you so that you can see him. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. As I close here this morning, I love the promise in Romans chapter 10. It says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it's by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. And as the scripture tells us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Anyone who trusts in him will never be separated from God's grace, disgraced. Anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. God's amazing grace will cover your impurity. That's why blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That's the good news for us. Jesus makes it possible for you and I to be pure and to see God both today and on that day when Jesus comes back to make things right. As I close this morning, um, I just wanna say, if you are here and you are not connected in a relationship with the God of the universe, he longs to be in a relationship with you. He loves you. He's provided an amazing way for your impurity and your mess to be cleansed and be made right. Don't leave here without doing business with God. After we finish our last song, there'll be some people up front who would love to pray with you and encourage you. I'd be happy to do that too. But do not walk out of here separated from God. He has an amazing plan for your life. He wants to know you. He wants you to follow him and he wants to show you the truth of his kingdom which is beyond anything we could hope or dream or ever imagine. And I also wanted to say thanks for 14 amazing years here. It's been an incredible ride. I'm just so grateful for what God has done and we've been able to share these years with you. So let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your goodness. Your plan is beyond anything that we could ever conjure up. It's awesome. And we love you. Thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for your promise. Thank you your promise for your promise to make us just in your eyes, to forgive us and to cleanse us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.